This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Book Audibles. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive on a question or category in one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. So this week we're looking at uh, April 27th through May 1st, 2020. We got through April. We made it. Congratulations, everyone. You all did amazing. Spoken like a teacher, Kyle. And I am very proud of you. And now we can look back and think of the things we can do better. But also that maybe just... we're doing all May. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe just be okay with how we are until things kind of settle back down. Mm-hmm. The goal is survival. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're here to talk about Jeopardy. Yes, we are. I love Jeopardy. Yes, we do. So on Monday, April 27th, we have Matt Ribble, a speechwriter from Washington, D.C., Lauren D'Souza, a sustainability analyst from Los Angeles, California, and Sarah Jett Rayburn, a writer and stay-at-home mom from Hutto, Texas, whose one-day cash winnings total $31,000. And we start with the Jeopardy! round categories, Who Made That?, City Homophones, One Word TV Titles, Around the USA, Potpourri Again, and starts with Z, Z in quotation marks. We just had a Potpourri category in the college tournament, like two yeah. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Man. <laughs> I, I really think you're right. One of the writers, at least, listens to our show. And it's probably, uh, realistically, it's probably all of them. They probably all get together and listen every week. Think about how they can do their jobs better based on our very deep and uh, important insights. That's the only possible explanation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I agree. Alex pointed out in the city homophones category that uh, you only needed to give one word, mm -hmm. not both. Uh, As we have seen another lesson from that last homophones category. (laughs) That's right. I'm still mad about the finale of Lost, the one-word TV titles category at the 200 level. Still mad. Yeah. Always going to be mad. I was kind of over the show by that point. Like, but, you know, I was already like six seasons in or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I guess I might as well finish the series. Uh, But we got to the end and I was like, meh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I stopped really caring a while ago. Yeah. I reinvested because I think uh, the uh, I think that J.J. Abrams and other um, folks associated with the show asserted they had a big plan for how the whole thing was going to end. Uh, uh, I was not satisfied with their big plan, it turns mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. In the starts with Z category, I thought the $800 clue and the $1,000 clue ought to at least be switched. And maybe the $1,000 clue should be significantly higher although it ended up being a triple stumper Mm -hmm. uh the thousand dollar clue was native to austria and germany it's the instrument being played here and they play a clip it's a plucked string instrument uh sarah guessed what is zydeco which is not an instrument it's a style of music music right 
yeah from like the bayou mm-hmm. uh in america um but it's a zither which to me if it's like it's a musical instrument that starts with a z it's like well i'm gonna get a zither even if i don't hear it you know but yeah maybe that's because it's in my wheelhouse yeah no i thought i also thought that zither was uh more gettable than zloty yeah which was the 800 dollars clue literally meaning golden it's the basic monetary unit of poland and i suppose you could always for trivia people you know learning monetary units is a thing you could know so it could be pretty accessible to people but yeah it's not one of the ones that you would know without studying it i would think unless you you know been to poland or something right it's not like a ruble or a rupee or a yen or a you know peso or a dollar or a pound the kinds of the, the more common ones we hear yeah, they get used by multiple countries. Yeah. Oh, maybe Zlatis get used by other countries. I, I don't know. But that's that is, it didn't seem like one of the one of the better known currencies. Yeah. We get the first daily double in the city homophones category at the one thousand dollar level. Matt finds it. He has twelve hundred uh, and makes it a true daily double. Uh, smart move because Sarah is leading with thirty two hundred and Lauren has twenty eight hundred. So even if he gets it. Uh, he's still going to be in a third, but a much closer third place. He gets the clue four-letter low-carb diet or Andean capital. And he guesses what is Lima. Uh, I guess thinking of Lima beans, maybe? Maybe. Um, but the correct answer is keto. The four-letter low-carb diet is K-E-T-O. The capital is keto, Q-U-I-T-O. Of It just flew away. Quito is Ecuador. Ecuador, yes. Thank yeah. you. I got stuck on, I, I heard four-letter low-carb diet, and I was like, but zone is not a capital of anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's kind of a throwback. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Tells you when I was paying attention. <laughs> well, well I no, guess. I, mean, I, mean, I know of keto, right? Yeah. But... yeah no, my, my dad got really into the zone diet when I was like a, when I was in like middle school and high school. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Matt gets it wrong and drops back to zero. But it's not its not too terrible for him. At the end of the Jeopardy round, he's back up to 1,000. Lauren has 3,400. Sarah has 4,800. So Matt's still in third place, but, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it's reasonably close. And they get the double Jeopardy categories. The Zulus, General Hospital, Holy Smoke, her major movie debut... Archer and uh phrasing. <laughs> have you ever watched Is Archer? Is there an inside joke there that I don't know? Yeah, have you ever watched Archer? I haven't watched Archer. Remember that... remember about how I've watched very few TV shows but all of the episodes of the ones I have watched. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's not, I mean, I suppose you would have gotten it if you had. Yeah, no. Um I think that is a very funny show. Uh okay. to be to be transparent, I haven't I don't think I've watched the last couple of seasons just it's not one that I can watch when the kids are around and frankly mm-hmm. don't have a lot of time to watch things on my own. But yeah, that's a one of the running gags in that show. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll, that's that's going to go on my list of shows that I need to check out. But alas, the archer category is not about the show. It's about like actual archers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who would have guessed on Jeopardy? I know. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it was sort of heartwarming that um, Sarah talked about um, her daughter's NICU stay at birth, and then on the first clue of the double jeopardy round, she got in on the clue one factor for a newborn entering the NICU, short for this, is a birth weight of less than 5.5 pounds. Um, that was in the general hospital category, and, uh, and of course she got it correct. It's not something they plan, but it's nice when that kind of thing happens. Yeah. And that's the neonatal intensive care unit. Yes. Uh, I got really excited with the Zulus category. Um, mm -hmm. Most of, well, not not necessarily most of, but or a couple of the things in that category uh, I had talked about in my deep dive into the Boer War. Mm -hmm. um, I recognized a lot of that. Yes. I mean, specifically the $800 clue where the correct response is the Boers. Yes. Yep. Uh, I had talked about, I believe, the Battle of Blood River. And I had also talked about uh, the the moment that pulled a lot of attention from viewers and social media. The $2,000 clue was uh, here, as on each September 24th, Zulus celebrate a holiday that was named in honor of this warrior leader of the early 1800s. And it showed a picture of uh, Shaka, King Shaka. Um, Sarah rang in. And probably as simply, you know, just running on reflex, said, who is Shaka Khan? Uh, which, and then looked confused at first when she was ruled incorrect, and then realized her mistake when she went back through what she had said. Uh, mm -hmm. Matt got in with it. I thought that was very funny. I, I did too. And I totally, like, I totally understand how that could happen. I don't think she had Shaka Khan and Shaka Zulu confused. Um, no. <laughs> I think in the moment she was saying Shaka and muscle memory just followed that up with Khan. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a very different story, though. Shaka Khan leading the Zulus into battle. <laughs> it really would. Uh, we get the second Daily Double. Actually, we get both Daily Doubles really late in the round. Uh, the second Daily Double is pick 28. It's in the Archer category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Lauren finds it, and she wagers... Uh, 2,500. She's in third place at 8,200. Uh, Sarah's in the lead at 14,400, and Matt is just ahead of her at 9,000. She gets the clue. In a 2008 novel, she gets angry at the game makers and shoots an arrow into a pig they are about to eat. Uh, and she knows that that is Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games. Yeah. You need pretty deep knowledge of The Hunger Games, I think. I guess game makers can get you there, you know, but like, yeah. or a lucky guess. But yeah, I thought I thought that was a good way to make the make a Hunger Games question like a little trickier. Yeah, you have to gather that it's the Hunger Games from a description of a plot point that you know isn't in the trailer, right? And then you have to recall the name of the protagonist. Yeah, I wondered if they would have accepted just Katniss. Hmm. Didn't need it. She gave yeah. both names. So, and then uh, on her very next pick, I mean, you know, I, I would say what are what were the odds? But fifty percent. The odds were fifty percent. On the very next pick, she uncovers the final daily double and wagers two thousand. Um, that daily double is at the twelve hundred dollar level of General Hospital, and so at this point, she's up to ten thousand seven hundred. Um, she gets the clue, this machine can restore a regular heartbeat by using electric currents. Are we clear? 
and she can't come up with anything. That is a defibrillator. Mm -hmm. The phrase that popped to mind for me was AED, which I think would not have been ruled correct. It's short for automatic or automated external external defibrillator defibrillator. i mean that's not incorrect it's perhaps a bit more specific yeah because you don't it does not need to be necessarily automated and it also does not necessarily need to be external right but yeah that's not i mean aeds are the models that you would have out you know in in the community at at a a school or a church or a or a pool or whatever so um, yep i was trained to use one as a lifeguard way back i was too yeah all right so that uh basically puts us at the end of the game going into final jeopardy sarah is in the lead at 14-4 Matt is in second place at 9,800, and Lauren is at 8,700. So both Matt and Lauren are within striking distance. They get the category Civil War People. And the clue is, before they were photographed together in 1862, Lincoln Riley noted this general should have no problem sitting still for it. Lauren wagered 5,701, which was enough to get her up above Sarah's score by a dollar. She guessed who is Sherman, and as Alex points out, no, Sherman was a mover and a shaker, which, I mean, I guess you could describe him as that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure the people of Savannah would use a different term. Um, Matt wagered, uh, that was incorrect. Matt wagered 97.98, so everything but $2. Uh, he did not really offer a response. He wrote half of Sherman, but that was wrong. And Sarah uh, wagered 6000 and she guessed who is Grant. That is also incorrect. Uh, the correct response is George McClellan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. then there is a very long conversation between Sarah and Alex as Sarah explains why she wrote Grant instead of Sherman and... Alex apparently is totally fine with it. He He's very positive about it. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of hard to judge how Alex will respond to things that contestants say. Yeah. He but. just, she, she seemed just a little nervous and a little, you know, like, like stream of consciousness. And I think it, it seemed to me he found it kind of endearing. Um, yeah, he certainly, yeah. 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 He, he was positive about it. Yeah. She described her choice of Grant as seeming safer, um, which would sound bizarre to a Civil War buff, but from a Jeopardy point of view, a final Jeopardy response is often going to be a pretty well-known person, place, thing, or concept, Mm -hmm. and uh, the clue will be like a little-known fact about that person, place, thing, or concept. And so I can see where she was coming from, that if she couldn't really quite remember her Civil War generals very well, that going for the one who's better known might be statistically a little bit of a better bet. Mm-hmm. She'd wagered 6000 So a little over a cover bet. Yeah, she was in a, in a kind of tough spot where if she makes a cover bet and got it wrong, no matter what, she would drop below Matt's score going into final hmm so yeah. but they all missed it sarah's our remains our champion going into tuesday mm-hmm. 
On Tuesday, we have Mina Lee, an ear, nose, and throat surgeon from Montclair, New Jersey. Allison Nelson, an elementary school teacher from Oak Park, Illinois, and Sarah Jett Rayburn, a writer and stay-at-home mom from Hutto, Texas, whose two-day cash winnings total $39,400. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, What's My Airline, A Landmark Address, Snopes Says Nope, Body Part AKAs, Silent C with the C in quotation marks, and MLB Single Season Records. And Alex points out only going back to 1900. So it really narrows it down there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It felt like the, the body part AKAs was a nice coincidence for it to come up uh, during Mina's game. Uh, since she's a surgeon, she, she knew, I think she knew these cold. Some of the, some of them, the other contestants knew too. So she ended up getting three out of the five. Yeah, but she probably could have gotten all of them if she got them. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, the, the two that other contestants got were um, Voice Box at the $400 level, uh, is also known as the Larynx. Allison got that one. And at the $800 level, Tympanum or Tympanic Membrane is also known as the Eardrum. Um, mm-hmm. Allison got that one as well. So the Daily Double uh, arrives at pick number 23. It's the $600 level in the What's My Airline category. Mina uncovers it. She is at 2600 just ahead of Sarah, who's at 2400 and behind Allison, who's at 3600 And Mina wagers 2000 She gets the clue. The headquarters of this airline that was organized jointly in 1953 by the federal and state government is in Cologne, Germany. She guesses what is Deutsche Airlines, but anyone who has, I think, traveled to Europe on the best airline you can would know that you were on Lufthansa. Hmm. You're a fan? Lufthansa is far and away the best international flight. Really, I mean, the best flight I have ever experienced. Nice. Yes. I've had reasonably positive experiences on Air France. I don't know if I've ever actually flown Air France. The meals are very French. Very, very French. French. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of bread and uh... there's a little there's a little weird little airline like little mini brie wedge sometimes. It's Ooh. hilarious. Do you get wine with your meals? You do. Of course you do. Come on. Of course it's you Air do. Air France. Of course you do. Um, Meanwhile, in America, you have to, like, pay for the cup that they pour the water into. Oh, Ridiculous. Airlines. Anyway. Anyway. Okay, the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Sarah at 4,200, Allison at 3,000, and Mina at 1,200. So she will pick first from Barack Obama's reading list, How Now, Double Vowel, Religious Isms, ISM in quotation marks, DJ Jazzy, Jeff, and the French Prince. Jeopardy writers. I know. Really going for it. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Jeff Purdy? Have we talked about that? No, we haven't. The, and... Have you seen the Jeff Purdy video? I have not. Oh my goodness. Um, anyway, the Jeff category made me think of Jeff Purdy, which if you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. It is well worth the minute and a half that it is to watch. 
So the second Daily Double comes up as the second pick in the round in the Religious Isms category at the $800 level. Allison finds it and wagers 600 of her 3,400. At that point, Sarah has 4,200 and Nina has 1,200. And she gets the clue, many adherents of this Caribbean religion believe in Hila Selassie as a messiah. She thinks about it for a little bit and can't come up with anything. She apologizes. Um, that's Rastafarianism. Mm-hmm. If you get a clue that references a Caribbean religion, it's going to be either Rastafarianism or voodoo, um, which are sufficiently different that you should be able to figure out which one of those they're looking for. Yeah. I knew that from playing Civilization V. Nice. Yeah. I've actually learned a number of things that I have come up on Jeopardy from that game. One of which came up in my very first game, The Great Mosque of Jenna. So yes, parents, have your kids play video games. It is educational. Mm-hmm. I just read a novel set largely in Ethiopia. So mm. I was was um, sort of a figure in the background. Um, Indeed. In- uh, Cutting for Stone was the novel. I would recommend it. It's, I feel like it's been a while since you've recommended a book. Yeah, well, there you go. This one's going to take you a while, so it's, <laughs> it's. I don't have to recommend another one for at least a good three weeks. Wow. It's like a 700 page novel. Nice. Yeah. That whole religious isms category went well for me. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I did pretty well in it too. So the third Daily Double comes in the French Prince category at the $1,600 level. Allison uncovers it. Uh, she is at 4400 She's in third place behind Sarah's 6200 and Mina's 7200 And she only wagers 600 I think mm-hmm. a far too conservative bet from third place. Yeah. But maybe she's not confident. She gets the clue... The title Prince of Conti was born by sons of this royal house that ruled France from 1589 to 1830, mostly. And Allison apparently gives a wild guess of uh, Bourbon, or Bourbon, mm-hmm. which is correct. There were really only two royal houses of France that lasted a while, right? I'm trying to remember the other one. It's the Valois and oh right, yeah, and the Bourbon. Yeah, yeah. A couple of these French prince category uh, questions connected back to my um, my Joan of Arc deep dive. Yes, they did. Yeah. Look at that! It's like we're talking about relevant things. Mm-hmm. Relevant to Jeopardy for sure. Well, I mean, we, if you're listening to our podcast right now, this is the world we are in. Mm-hmm. That's right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So us. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Allison is in the lead with eleven thousand. She had um, staged a bit of a comeback in the last third or so. I mean, even after getting that uh, after getting that last daily double, she she had a pretty good run and uh, and is in the lead with eleven thousand. Mina is in second place with ten thousand four hundred. Sarah is in third place with seven thousand eight hundred. And we get the final Jeopardy category, 1950s films. 
The clue is, the last line of this epic film was, Go, proclaim liberty throughout all the lands unto all the inhabitants thereof. Uh, Sarah has wagered 7,700. That may be high for this situation. Um, mm-hmm. Might be better to stay closer to where she is and let the others drop below her if they miss. Uh, but she has guessed what is the Ten Commandments, and that is correct. Mina has wagered everything, $10,400, and she has guessed what is Ben-Hur. Emily's favorite book. To the, the, to the book, the epic movie based on it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Phenomenally popular and influential in their time. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> We're going to see how many weeks in a row we can go with me bringing up Ben-Hur. So she drops down to zero. Uh, Allison has wagered $10,000 and uh, guesses what is the Grapes of Wrath. So she drops down to 1000 lands in second place. And Sarah is our winner. Those are all pretty reasonable guesses. I got to the right response, but I considered the Grapes of Wrath and Ben-Hur before deciding on the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the Ten Commandments, actually. I mean, you can just... I was going to try to make a joke about reading the Cliff Notes version. I really don't know which one would actually be shorter. Yeah. Yeah. I think the movie with Charlton Heston is really long. That's yeah, what I'm that saying. Was, like what people were looking for from their movies at that time. They were looking for, like, you know, a spectacle that you could go to for, like, a really solid good portion of your day yeah. you know yeah they, um, they were looking at an epic yeah so going into wednesday we have anastasia Placus, an investigator from flushing new york alwyn hui a consultant from washington dc and sarah jet rayburn a writer and stay-at-home mom from hutto texas whose three-day cash winnings total fifty-four thousand nine hundred dollars The Jeopardy round categories are the Billboard Music Awards, We'd Like to Make a Correction, Spineless Jellyfish, Well-Seasoned Vocabulary, Writer's Middle Names, and Four-Letter Words with Three Vowels. Mm -hmm. Spineless is really the only kind of jellyfish there are. Wow. Wow, just throwing some shade on jellyfish. (laughs) Apparently, this is the podcast we are now. <laughs> Put that in the tags. Anti-jellyfish. I thought that was a fun category, though. We never saw the $200 clue, but we were asked at the $400 level about um, common predators of ocean jellyfish uh, include these reptiles. The leatherback really goes to town. That's a, that's the sea turtle. Mm-hmm. And we had, a, we had a fun picture of a jellyfish at the $1,000 level. With the clue, call it the king of sea beasts. It's the two-word feline hair name of this, the largest species of jellyfish. Um, that's a lion's mane jellyfish. That was a triple stumper. Mm. Yeah, a couple of clues in there, but if you didn't know it, I, I totally understand not guessing on it. Yeah. We get the first Daily Double as the fifth pick in the writer's middle names category. Anastasia finds it. Uh, she's at 400 Sarah and Alwyn are tied at $800 each. Um, so Anastasia wagers 1000 and gets the clue Cecil Forrester and Francis Fitzgerald. 
and correctly responds, what, who is Scott? That whole category, you were given the author's first and last name for an author commonly known by all three names and had to come up with the middle name. So um, Francis F. Scott Fitzgerald, I think, would have been the more common route. Yeah, because I don't know that, I mean, before this, I did not know that the S in C.S. Forrester was Scott. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Anastasia is in a pretty solid lead with 7,400. Alwyn has 3,000, Sarah has 1,800, and we get the double Jeopardy categories. There she is, Myth Greece, Laying Things End to End, Prequels, 1917, The Goldbergs, that's two words, and Berg is spelled B-U-R-G, and I'm Just Wild About Harry. And I feel like there are TV jokes going over my head. Probably, but I'm. Uh, I don't know that I get it either. Yeah. I very much enjoyed the uh, "There She Is" myth Greece category. They went uh, top to bottom for the first five uh, clues in the category. There, Uh, the second daily double shows up at uh, pick number four at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Sarah uncovered it, and she wagered 2,000 of her 3,000. She was tied with Alwyn and trailing Anastasia's 8,600 at that point. So uh, she gets the clue, an early snowbird, this daughter of Zeus, had to spend a few months a year in Hades after an unfortunate food choice. And that is Persephone. Mm -hmm. Depending on how you want to read that story... could be, uh, you, you could take a lens of like feminist empowerment, or you could take the total opposite <laughs> lens mm. with that story. Yes. Um, depending on, depending on, I guess, who's telling it and how you want to uh, elaborate the details. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I've yeah. talked before about how much I love mythology. Yeah. So this, this is just a coincidence, obviously, because we know that the the material is randomized but uh this is the third day in a row this week that we have had at least one clue uh pertaining to south africa uh Mm. on monday we had the zulu category uh on tuesday we had a clue we didn't talk about it but we had a clue about uh the language afrikaans and uh on wednesday here in the Goldbergs category, the $400 clue. This big berg was founded in 1886 following the discovery of gold in the Transvaal. And that is Johannesburg. Yes. Which I talked about. Mm-hmm. You sure did. We get the third daily double in that category, the Goldbergs, um, as at the $1,200 level as the 24th pick. Alwyn finds it and wagers 3,800 of his 12,200. Sarah's at 15,000, so he's looking to uh, get into the lead by $1,000. Anastasia is at 10,200. He gets the clue, in 1855, a California mining town wisely changed its name from Mud Springs to this, a Spanish name for a legendary gold country. And he correctly responds, what is El Dorado? Mm Mm-hmm. Just a quick, quick shout out. The next 
clue down in the category at the $1,600 level. It was uh, the 1859 Pikes Peak Gold Rush gave birth to this city, which merged with Auraria in 1860. And that's Denver. And that is a fact that I did not know. But it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Auraria is the the name of the, the main university campus in like the middle of downtown so now i understand where that name comes from nice yeah so at the end of the double jeopardy round we've got some high scores sarah is in the lead at seventeen thousand four hundred. Alan is right behind her at sixteen thousand four hundred, and anastasia is at eleven thousand they get the category 19th century novels and the clue its first line ends quote the period was so far like the present period for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. Anastasia bet everything and got it correct with what is a tale of two cities. She also wrote a nice note to her nieces and nephews. So she doubles up. Alwyn is incorrect. He writes, what is the time machine? He wagered 5601. And Sarah... Betting 17,000 gets it correct with what is A Tale of Two Cities. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big bet, but also... It, it's not wrong. Yeah. With Alwyn so close, if you're going to make a cover bet, you're basically going all in. So Yeah. Yeah, I think to make a, co- a cover bet would have been... Let's see. 15,401? Yeah. Which... Yeah. It... The difference there between the minimum cover bet and basically everything is negligible. Yeah. So yeah, she wins day four uh, with $34,400, which is uh, significantly higher than the other day's totals had been. Yeah. So we have her back again on Thursday. We've got the contestants Jesse Lehman, a public policy director from Long Island City, New York. Kevin Curran, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, and Sarah Jett Rayburn, a writer and stay-at-home mom from Hutto, Texas, whose four-day cash winnings total $89,300. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Children's Lit, College and University Origins, Fighting for an Oscar, Nicknames, Pay Respects, and F in quotation marks. Oh, okay. That's a that's a, a surprising uh, reference that they're making. That's um that's from like watching uh, if you know what Twitch is, the streaming website. Uh, I know what it is. I don't get the reference though. Yeah, it's it's this. It's it's kind of a meme now. Uh, you know, type F to pay respects. Um, I'm not going to explain it all, but that that's what it comes Somebody from. Somebody is amusing themselves in the writer's room because there is about a 0% chance that most of their uh, target audience their is going to know that. That audience, yes. Yeah, <laughs> like that's surprising to me. But Amusing yourself in the writer's room, that's understandable, right? Like that's what all the, the, like, the parenting inside jokes are about is like, you know, might as well. Yeah, why not? Might as well amuse yourself. That's, that's very funny. I did not catch that before. I uh, Thank you for explaining it to me. Yeah. I would not have known. At, I mean, it seemed like a weird, like, usually you wouldn't just put 
the letter in quotation marks by itself unless you were making some kind of joke, but I would have had no idea where where to even start trying to figure out what the reference was. Yeah, yeah. Fighting for an Oscar turned out to be all about fighting, like boxing or other kinds of fighting movies and their Oscar nominations and awards. Yeah, the $1,000 clue in that category punchy pug marlon brando brawled his way to a best actor oscar in this 1954 classic uh that's on the waterfront which matters to me because leonard bernstein wrote the score for it which was the only movie uh for which he wrote an original score huh well that's interesting mm-hmm. it's the source of the line i could have been a contender could have been a contender yeah it's a good movie so the Daily Double shows up at pick number 14. Jesse finds it, and he wagers 1,000 of his 1,800. Uh, he's in second place. Sarah is at 2,800, and Kevin is at 400. Uh, he gets the clue. In 1855, two faculty members and 10 students began hitting the books at this now Big Ten school less than 15 miles from Chicago. And he knows that that is Northwestern. Apparently there was some some social media noise about the um, F category, the $800 level. It's commonly used for outdoor paving and was also the original last name of the animated Fred and Wilma. Um, and they showed a picture of like a patio with kind of these large like stone tiles. Um, that is flagstone. And I think that people were objecting that Fred and Wilma are the Flintstones. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the series was, I think, originally called the Flagstones, and they changed the name pretty early on. Mm -hmm. Maybe right after the pilot? I haven't looked into it. Anyway, I promise you that the Jeopardy writers researched it and didn't just make a a dumb mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally they do, but... That clue is worded very specifically to say the original last name. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's obvious that they were being intentional. Yeah. All right, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sarah is at 6,800, Kevin's at 3,400, and Jesse is at 6,000. They get the Double Jeopardy categories Names in American History, Toot Sweet, World Capital Rivers, What Does It Stand For?, Totally awesome 80s TV and broken English. I would love to spend the entire time talking about the Toot Sweet category. There are a few things that I will touch on quickly before we, you know, move on too far. Uh, the first one, the $400 clue, it's Ferde Grofi's suite, named for this Arizona landmark, has trumpets mimicking crickets among many 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 other things i should add uh and that's the grand canyon suite sarah got that correct uh that uh also is the music which i found out much later in in life that's the music that is used for the soundtrack for a christmas story if you've ever seen that movie okay yes uh and then at the 1200 dollar clue in the 1950s Chico O'Farrell's Afro-Cuban jazz suite featured this, quote, avian saxophonist tootin'. Um, Sarah rings in and says, Birdman? Like, Charlie Parker? And that I I take a bit of issue with, because I have never heard him referred to as Birdman, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Birdman is, like, a 
DC Comics superhero. I've heard him referred to as Bird or Yardbird, but never as Birdman. So maybe I'm just unaware of that, but that is that is outside of my my knowledge, and I feel at least fairly knowledgeable there. Yeah. And then I think I've talked about the planets, $1,600 clue. Mercury, the winged messenger, in this Holst suite brings some high-pitched frivolity. Uh, that's the planets. If you've never listened to the planets, uh, give yourself, you know, I think 35, 40 minutes, depending on the recording you listen to. Listen to it once. I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Good suite. Yeah. Even if you've never sat down and listened to the planets, parts of it will surely be familiar. Oh, Yeah. Whether you've heard it explicitly or used in other things or borrowed for uh, countless movie scores, mm-hmm. there's a lot of very noticeable uh, noticeable themes in the planets that you'll be like, oh, that sounds like this movie I've seen. Oh, but this is so much older, so they must yeah. have taken it. Mm-hmm. We get the second daily double in the World Capital Rivers category at the $1,200 level. Jesse finds it and makes it a true daily double with 5,600. Uh, that is totally the right move because Sarah has 10,000 at that point and Kevin has 7,000. Yeah. Um, and he gets the clue of the four capitals that stand on the Danube. Three start with a B. Bratislava, Budapest, and this one further south. And geez, that's a hard clue, I think. Um, yeah. But he correctly comes up with, what is Belgrade? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that is that is a... Because you got to know the Danube, and then you got to know the capital of whatever countries the Danube passes through. So yeah, good for him. Uh, takes a well-deserved lead. I, I would say that might be the hardest clue of that category, I thought. Yeah. Uh, Jesse had a rough break at the $2,000 level of that category. Um, the clue was, this capital of Laos lies on the Mekong. He said, what is Vien- Vientiane? Or... Yetian. It was it was clear that he knew it, but didn't quite pronounce it closely enough to correct. Uh, it's Vientian. Mm-hmm. So that turned into a triple stumper. He also had a rough break. A couple clues later at the $800 of what does it stand for. Uh, the clue was the A in the disease AIDS. Um, he guessed what is auto, um, clearly thinking of autoimmune diseases. Yeah. Um, the A in AIDS is for acquired, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Mm. So Sarah, Sarah got the rebound from him on that one. The third Daily Devil is the last pick in the round. It's clue number 30, and it's at the bottom of the Toot Sweet category. Uh, Sarah finds it, and she wagers just 300. She is at 12,800. Kevin is in the lead at 13,000. And Jesse is at 11200 so if she gets it right, she'll be $100 ahead of Kevin. And if she gets it wrong, it's really kind of no harm with that. I thought bet. this was a really savvy wager. Yeah. Because having a lead, even by a tiny bit, going into Final Jeopardy is a huge advantage. Yeah, for sure. Uh, she gets the clue. There's a bassoon solo in the Rimsky-Korsakov suite named for this woman who told great stories. Sarah does not know it. She stammers. Uh, she knows, she recognizes the reference to A Thousand and One Nights, and she says Salome, which is not correct. Then the buzzer goes off, and she realizes that she meant to say Scheherazade, uh, mm-hmm. which is the correct response. Also, if you've never listened to Scheherazade, oof, 
take the time. Okay. Mm. So good. And again, very recognizable themes in there, too. This has been Classical Music Recommendations with Kyle. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, these are classics. So really everything on here you can absolutely check out. Grand Canyon Suite is fun to listen to. Uh, You could listen with your kids. You could be like, hey, what animals do you hear? Because there's a lot of like representative uh, programmatic kind of stuff in there. Cool. Listen to Scythian Suite. It's a little more out there. Check out you know charlie parker if you've never listened to jazz and then the planets and scheherazade Mm, man that's a good playlist all right i know what i'm treating my kids to on our next road trip (laughs) 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 um so at the end of the double jeopardy round we have a very close game kevin is in the lead with thirteen thousand. Sarah has kept it really close with 12,500 thanks to that smart small wager on the um, last pick, Daily Double. Uh, Jesse's at 11,200. We get the category advertising and the clue. Copywriter Keith Goldberg wrote this question in 1999 for a financial services company. They're still using it. Jesse has wagered 1,800, so he is pulling into a tie with Kevin and he is correct with the response what is what's in your wallet which is one of those times when the Jeopardy question phrasing sounds really weird um you're always a little safer throwing that what is on there yeah um although I think they would have taken just what's in your your wallet wallet. um, yeah because it's phrased in the form of a question Anyway, uh, he's at 13000 Uh Sarah has wagered everything but a dollar, 12499 And her response is, what is have you done? And Alex sort of queries what she might have been getting at. And she says, have you done your taxes? That's incorrect. So she drops down to a buck. Kevin has wagered 12501 which is... Cover that's bet. A cover bet. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. No. That's a little more than a cover bet. Oh yeah, just we need to be twelve thousand one. Twelve thousand one. He. I think. Uh, I think it's. I think a five hundred maybe snuck in there somehow. Yeah. That can happen when you're doing math fast under pressure. Um, With a sharpie. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't manage to get anything really intelligible written down. He had what is what CA, maybe maybe heading for what card or something like that. In any case, he drops down to 499, uh, which means that Jesse is our winner going into Friday. Yep. So Sarah had a nice four game run. Uh, and, you know, who knows? Maybe that'll be good enough for the next tournament. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. Uh, so we get to Friday, May 1st. Gonna be May. Uh, oh man, all those memes. Uh, we get Kumar Zamed, a field organizer from La Cañada, Flint Ridge, California. Ashley McCord, a marine resource management specialist from Beverly, Massachusetts. Sorry, from Beverly, Massachusetts. And now. <laughs> and uh, Jesse Lehman. A public policy director from Long Island City, New York. You're not going to attempt to a Queens accent, or? Uh, I don't feel as confident with my variations on New York as I do on yeah. my variations on Boston. It's 
fair. Uh, who's, right. who's one day cash winnings total $13,000. Uh, we get the Jeopardy round category sports mascots, states by borders, politician authors, mayday, mayday, huh. complete the Brit phrase, and let them eat cake. Uh, they start out in the sports mascot category. And I gotta say, I, I'm i disappointed in the writers that they did not include Gritty. Mm. Gritty's a Jeopardy fan. Yeah, gotta respect Gritty. Or at least the Gritty Plays Jeopardy Twitter account is a Jeopardy fan. <laughs> yeah, they struggled with that mascots category. Yeah, I mean it... It was, uh... There was only one that turned out to be, like, actually a triple stumper. Yeah, but there were some incorrect responses, and and it just, I mean, I thought that was surprisingly hard. I, I kind of thought it would be pretty straightforward, but I thought those clues were, were more obscure than just, like, who is this team's mascot, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, eventually they moved over from sports mascots to uh, the States by Borders category where they found the first daily double at the $800 level. Jesse found it with $1,800. Um, he made it a true daily double. Ashley and QRs were both at zero at that point. Mm-hmm. He got the clue Connecticut, Massachusetts, and he correctly responded, what is Rhode Island? There is one other state that borders both Connecticut and Massachusetts, but it also borders other states. New York would not count for yeah. this. I thought the Brit phrase category was uh, a lot of fun. It, it was interesting to see these these phrases that like some of them I've heard, some of them I've I've never heard. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one man's meat is another man's poison. Mm-hmm. I've I have not heard that at the thousand dollar level. This fruit shaped means things have gone very very <laughs> wrong. Uh, that's pear shaped. I I've heard people use that phrase and i keep and i have up until this point always thought to myself do they realize that that means something else entirely but it turns out only for americans and you know perhaps only those american women who are reading trashy magazines sure yeah that are designed Uh, to make you feel bad about yourselves yes indeed yeah yeah i recognized that one from my time watching the great british baking show nice the bakers in that show they they use the words like disaster and catastrophe in ways that seem far less intense than i think i would use them like i I remember i don't remember who it was but at one point like their cake didn't turn out well and they're like well it's not a catastrophe but at least it's not a complete disaster and i'm like Mm -hmm. how how can you differentiate between those two (laughs) that is that is not the description i would use for either of those things yeah i just I had a lot of fun in that category. Yeah, it was a good category. Uh, as was, speaking of Great British Baking Show, oh, yes. uh, the Let Them Eat Cake category right next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All those cakes. That was mm. great. Yes. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Jesse is in a very solid lead with 9,400. Ashley has 3,400. Kumar is in the red, negative 200. Um, and we get the double jeopardy categories, historic happenings, European museums, names in pop culture, Copley medal winners, 
Uh, and Alex notes that is the um, the UK's uh, science medal. Um, Books of the Dead and Afterlife. Each correct response will be a word that begins with L-I and comes after the word life in the dictionary. Yeah, so uh, Qmars is picking first. And on pick one, he finds the Daily Double, the second Daily Double of the game. Uh, it's in the $2,000 level of historic happenings. Uh, he is, like we just went through the scores, they're the same. Uh, he wagers 2000 and he gets the clue. Accommodations were poor at this Crimean conference that shaped post-war Europe. Bad beds, lice, and Stalin had no private bathroom. Uh, and he knows that that is Yalta, the Yalta conference. Mm-hmm. So he gets himself out of the hole. Um, he did a really nice job of making a comeback in this early part of the double jeopardy round. Yeah. Uh, he retained control of the board for the until the sixth clue. He hopped from that daily double over to another two thousand dollar clue, um, which turned out to be a triple stumper, and then he worked his way up that historic happenings category and got all of them except for the 400 where Jesse got in ahead of him. Mm -hmm. Um, So he managed in uh, to start in the red and then make his way up into second place um, in the first five clues. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I saw, um, I tried to, I tried to get my kids to shout it out at the $1,200 level of European museums the Nemo Science Museum is just off the I Waterway in this world capital. Um, that's in Amsterdam, and our first time taking our kids out of the country um, was right after I taped Jeopardy, actually. Um, and we went, uh, we went to Amsterdam and to Brussels, and um, really enjoyed taking them to that science museum. And they both remember it, and they sometimes they've forgotten how long an airplane ride is. Hmm. Um, and so some, for a while afterwards, they would sometimes say, oh, can we go back to that science museum that's in Amsterdam? <laughs> um, uh, in a like, could we go this afternoon kind right. of way? Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, kids lose all perspective on, on time. Time like and that. distance, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, really cool. That's a great museum. I will check it out if I ever make <laughs> if it if there. You're ever, if you're ever there with a, with a child, yeah. I'd recommend it. Yeah. $800 clue in names and pop culture. Uh, the clue is a self-described average student. This former Late Show host funds a scholarship at Indiana's Ball State. That is Letterman, David Letterman. I got my master's at Ball State. So did my wife. That's a oh, nice. little alma mater there. Yeah, uh, they love David Letterman. And he obviously, uh, he you know, he funds a scholarship. They're... Uh, their their like communications building is named after him too so uh they're they're very proud of him (laughs) at ball state cool little shout out to muncie there so we get daily double three as the 28th pick at the 1600 dollars level of that european museums category uh kumars finds it and uh wagers 3200 he's uh at 12200 at that point um Jesse has 15,400. Ashley has 10,200. So Qmars is aiming to tie with Jesse. Oh, but they've got a few. They've got a few uh, few questions after that. To, two questions after that to break the tie. 
he gets the clue. A UK museum de dedicated to this author has a ball made of chocolate bar foil wrappers. And he correctly responds, who is Roald Dahl? Uh, you might get that by um, knowing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If you've read his, uh, his memoir of his childhood, you would know that he was um, a, a taste tester for Cadbury. They would send these little boxes of, of chocolates out to, like, a panel of kids um, <laughs> for them to take notes on and send their notes back. Wow. Um, yeah. How do you get uh, that gig? Right? That's why I read his memoir over and over when I was a kid. I was like, how? 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 Yeah. I don't know if the, that's where the foil wrappers were from. Probably not. Um, mm. But that was that was my other association with that clue. So he... Uh, he pulls into a tie there. Yeah, unfortunately, he had a miss right after that on a $400 clue, so top, dropped into a close second place. Um, and then the final clue Ashley got to pull her third place a little bit closer. So going into final, Jesse is in the lead at 15,400. Kumars is right behind at 15,000. And Ashley is at 10,600. So another high-scoring game. They get the category Nations of the World, and the clue, on the English language list of member states at un.org, it's the only nation with a Spanish language article in its name. Uh, Ashley wagered 1,800. Uh, not certain about that wager. Maybe you have more insight. Um, mm. But she guessed what is Cote d'Ivoire, which is French, but if you don't have a better guess, I guess that's okay. Uh, so that's incorrect. Kumar's wagered 15,000, all of it, uh, and incorrectly guessed what is Belize. And Jesse also wagered 15,000 and correctly guessed what is El Salvador. So he ends the week as the winner with 30,000, with a two-day total of 43,400. I have figured out, I think, what Ashley was doing with her $1,800 wager, uh, which is that she was thinking about if Kumar's covers an all-in from her, so he, he aims to, uh, to land at 21,200. So if he wagers 6,201 and misses, he will drop to Eighty-seven ninety-nine. Mm. So she's looking to drop to eighty-eight hundred ah. if she misses. Nice. Um, yeah, I think I think that was a smart wager. Now that I do the math, yeah, that was yep. That makes sense. Even with a more strategic wager from Kumar's, that would have given Ashley the win if Jesse had missed. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. Did you get to El Salvador? Yeah, I got to it right away. Yeah. It took me a minute of sort of running through Central American, South American countries in my head. Yeah. Um, but I got there in plenty of time. Yeah. Yeah. But good game. Um, pretty strong combined choreat from these three. It was a, it was a close, yeah, it was good a, match. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that ends this week, and uh, the next two weeks we're getting a break in regular programming. We're going to see uh, 
Ken Jennings' first Jeopardy appearance. That's going to be fun. Yeah. And then we're going to see a re-airing of the GOAT tournament. And then we're going to see Ken Jennings' last uh, regular season appearance, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, during those weeks, we will be uh, doing something a little bit different. We won't be recapping the uh, greatest of all time tournament because we've already done that. He look at this seamless segue to talking about our Patreon. That is up in the uh, patron section of our Patreon. If you choose to become a patron of ours, you can check it out patreon.com/potentpotables. Uh, we have subscription levels from three dollars on up. Any level will get you access to our exclusive content, which includes our recaps and analysis of the GOAT tournament back in January. Uh, So check that out. There is other stuff on there as well that we have talked about before. Uh, So because we've already done that, we're not going to do it again. Uh, We have have an idea of what we're going to do, but we'll, we'll save it for you for then. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, Emily, do you have guesses? As to what our deep dive will be on. Okay, I do have guesses. Um, My top guess is something from Toot Sweet, and I didn't narrow it down more than that. Uh, No. Um, I wanted to, but I already kind of talked about it, and... uh... Yeah, I guess when you talked about it, it, that made me think maybe you weren't going to do it, but then also, um, was it... I think it was with Bernstein that you gave, like, a little, like, a little preview... Of what turned out to be your deep dive topic. Right, that's true. Yeah, so and I, I, I mean, not to rule it out altogether. Which is fair. Having talked about Bernstein, I feel like I have to do... I have to give some space before I do another, like, classical art music dive. Fair. Alright, uh, what about the Balfour Declaration? That was one I strongly considered because I, I know pretty much nothing about it. But uh, that's not what I went with. Okay. Um, what about Morse? Uh, no. Okay. No. Nope. I, uh, I went with one that it was a triple stumper. We did not mention it uh, in our talk previously, though. Uh, it's It was from Thursday. The double Jeopardy round. The category is Names in American History. And it was a $1,200 clue. And it's This Wild West Frontiersman Got His Name on a State Capitol in 1864. Uh, Kevin had rung in and guessed what is uh, Austin, which, thinking of Stone Cold Steve Austin, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, But no, that is Kit Carson. uh, Great, because I know nothing about him except Carson City came to mind, and then I thought, is it named for a frontiersman? I have no idea. Who is it it, named for? It is indeed named for Kit Carson. Uh, And I realized that that was about as much as I knew about Kit Carson. I mean, I had relatives in Carson City for a long time, and growing up in the West, Kit Carson is a name that, like, is around, along with the other frontiersmen and, you know, like, pioneer heroes and all of that of of the of American history. But I, uh, yeah, I knew next to nothing about him, so I decided to look into him. Turns out, got some, uh, got some unsavory, unsavory, uh, aspects to his story, which I was not super excited about, but I guess trigger warning, he was pretty awful toward Native Americans, which was not certainly unique to him, but 
if that's something that that you would rather not listen to then you go ahead and uh you know skip ahead to the to the quiz but he also did other things that were not terrible which i'll talk about so okay. we are talking about kit carson his uh, real name is Christopher Houston Carson. He was born on Christmas Eve of 1809, and he lived until May 23rd of 1868. Uh, he was an American frontiersman, fur trapper, wilderness guide, uh, Indian agent, and U.S. Army officer. Uh, he was not unique, but uh, one of the few people who gained fame in his lifetime in kind of a sensationalized way, which I'll talk about a little bit more later on. He he was a figure in news articles and novels during his lifetime. Um, mm. But like I said, I'll talk about that later. He had an understated kind of nature, kind of, kind of a <clears throat> outward attitude. Uh, but he was, as much as the stories may exaggerate things, he, he really was a pretty fearless, tenacious, and and determined person. He was born in Kentucky, in Madison County, Kentucky. His parents were Lindsay Carson and Rebecca Robinson. He was the 11th child of Lindsay Carson, which, you know, really had a great place Jeez. to fit in there. Uh, yeah, Lindsay Carson had a had first wife, with and had five children from her and then with Rebecca Robinson he had 10 more and uh, Kit was the sixth of those 10. Um, they nicknamed him Kit because uh, he was a small baby so when he was born they nicknamed him Kit. His father was a Scots-Irish Presbyterian. He had been a farmer and uh, fought in both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 as well as various Indian american indian battles uh along the frontier uh so kit grew up you know being fully aware of military life and and uh that kind of action when he was a child they moved to boone's lick missouri um and a great name yeah they settled on a tract of land owned by the sons of daniel boone uh and so the boone and carson families became friends uh, intermarrying, working, going out together. Very, very close families. Uh, in 1818, Kit's father, Lindsay, died when a tree limb fell on him while he was clearing a field. Uh, Kit was about eight years old, uh, so his widowed mother raised her children and after a while married another man. Kit did not get along with this gentleman, and uh, as a result, he was apprenticed to a guy named David Workman, a saddler in Franklin, Missouri. Mm. Which, you know, if I'm going to go and ask someone to do some work, I want their name to be Workman. I would trust that. Yeah. And Workman was good to good to Kit. He treated him well and, and uh, was a good, a good teacher. So Franklin is at the eastern end of the Santa Fe Trail, and a lot of the customers that came through the saddle shop were trappers and traders, Kit, at a young age, heard a lot of, you know, exciting stories about the, the frontier and about the West. He did not per particularly care for saddlery. And in 1826, uh, Kit ran away from his apprenticeship. He joined up with a caravan of fur trappers and went west along the Santa Fe Trail, all the way to Santa Fe. 
And uh, from there, he went and settled in Taos for a little while. He lived with a trapper named Matthew Kincaid. And uh, Kincaid kind of taught him the skills of trapping and taught him Spanish and some native languages so that he could, you know, be survivable and be able to trade in the area. And between 1827 and 1829, Carson just kind of worked whatever jobs he could get. He was a cook, he was a translator, a wagon driver. He even worked in a copper mine near the Gila River uh, for a while. In 1829, at the age of 19, he began his career as a mountain man. He traveled through a lot of the American West uh, with other mountain men like Jim Bridger and Bill Williams. And in 1829, he joined uh, Ewing Young's trapping expedition. And so that's kind of where he really, really learned the trade. He found his first experience of combat in August of 1829. The expedition went into Apache country and they were attacked, but he obviously managed to survive. And he just kind of went around, you know, the Mountain West for a number of years. Uh, So by 1840, uh, the beaver trapping business, which had really been his primary source of income, that fur trade began to drop off because all of the fashionable men in the big cities of London and Paris and New York, they no longer wanted beaver hats, they wanted silk hats. Also, the beaver population in North America had plummeted uh, because, you know, beavers are not particularly fast. Uh, and in the, the parts of the country that were not really populated, they didn't necessarily fear humans all that much. Uh, so they were, like, way overhunted. So in 1841... He was hired at Bent's Fort in Colorado, which was the largest building on the Santa Fe Trail, and he worked as a hunter there. He went out and got buffalo, antelope, deer, uh, other meat to bring back to the fort. Along with being just, you know, a, a mountain man and a, an outdoorsman, Kit Carson was a, an adventure seeker. And one of the ways that he sort of indulged that was through violence, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. For much of his young life, especially, he did not shy away from and even sought out opportunities to get into to get into combat with uh, Native Americans. During that first expedition with Ewing Young, uh, it's believed that that was his uh, that was kind of the beginning of this. So his his memoirs have tons of stories about hostile Indian encounters, like in 1833. Warriors of the Crow tribe stole some horses from Carson's camp, and so him and two other men from their expedition found the Crow camp and just sprayed it with gunfire, killing pretty much everyone there. And Carson did not show any remorse for that. Uh, He, at best, was just very clinical about it. He especially viewed the Blackfoot Nation as hostile. He just hated them. Every opportunity he got to kill a Blackfoot, he took. He had several encounters with them throughout the 1830s with Jim Bridger and with uh, other other expeditions as well. There are some stories about that. I don't necessarily feel the need to read them. Um, they're not particularly pleasant. Mm-hmm. Although a, a number of historians point out that his notions about Indians softened over the years as he spent more time as a mountain man and, uh, you know, in their territory, he got to know them more, got to... Uh, understand their ways and view them more humanely 
this is my own personal take and of course i'm not a an expert on him but didn't seem to really like really take that much uh at least he stopped actively seeking out opportunities to kill them so yeah. i guess that's a that's a bonus he even married two native american women in his lifetime yeah, the first was in 1836. He met an Arapaho woman named Wanibe, or Singing Grass, at one of the mountain men uh, rendezvous in Wyoming. Uh, she was reportedly a lovely woman, and many of the mountain men were... <laughs> what I read, it says, we're in love with her. I'm going to say we're lusting after her. Carson, uh, he, he was forced to fight a duel with a French trapper named Chenard over her hand, and uh, he won, obviously, because he didn't die, uh, so he married her. And she seemed, from what accounts we have, she seemed content in the marriage. Uh, they had a daughter named Adeline, but Singing Grass died after giving birth to uh, their second daughter in 1841, uh, and that second daughter did not live long either. When she was about two years old in Taos, she fell into a boiling kettle of soap and died there's some stuff that as i'm reading this and looking at stuff i'm just like reading a sentence sentence and then something like that hits me and i'm like whoa yeah these are these are intense yeah so uh so we had a daughter named adeline who he took to uh st louis and dropped off with his sister because the life of a mountain man is not good for a little girl mm -hmm. so uh in 1841 which was soon after uh his first wife died he married a cheyenne woman named making out road and uh, they were only together a short time. Making Out Road divorced him by putting Adeline and all of his property outside of their tent. And then she left with the rest of her uh, tribe as they uh, moved west. Hmm. So that didn't work out for very long. Then in 1842, uh, he met a Mexican woman named uh, Josefa Jaramillo. And uh, he converted to Catholicism and married her. They had eight children together. So... Yeah, seemed okay, I guess. Yeah. His marriages to Native women and his time spent in, in Native uh, territory with Native tribes, it does seem that he did at least begin to view them as people eventually, which is nice, mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> after that time in the 1840s, after the fur trade kind of dried up, he met up with John C. Fremont, who is a pretty uh, prominent name in American history for a number of reasons. Uh, he was a politician and explorer. Uh, at the time, he was in the uh, Army Corps of Topographical Engineers and was leading an expedition to the West to map, you know, the, the Western territories. Uh, and so he hired Carson as a guide. They went on three expeditions together in the 1840s. The first one in 1842 was taking the Oregon Trail to South Pass, Wyoming. That was the purpose, was to map and describe the trail up to that point. The second expedition in 1843 was uh, across part of the Oregon Trail to the Columbia River, which, you know, if we've ever played the game, we know that you get to the Columbia and you're almost there. Mm -hmm. You just got to ford it or cross it somehow. and It's treacherous, as long as you didn't die of dysentery before. Yeah. I'm a fan of caulking the wagons and floating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could try to float it. Yeah, or you could try to float it. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what they that's what they did. Uh, they also side-tripped to the Great Salt Lake 
and did some other stuff. Uh, on that second ex- expedition, as they were going through the Sierra Nevadas, there was some bad weather, but Carson was able to guide them out and uh, keep them keep them safe. However, they illegally entered California, which was Mexican territory at the time. And the U.S. government didn't really care that they had illegally entered California, and Fremont was promoted and given the name The Pathfinder. And then the third expedition, they went to Oregon again and into California, and this one, Fremont took upon himself, maybe upon himself, or maybe was told by President Polk, to stir up some patriotic sentiment in the American settlers in Northern California. And also during this time... Fremont and his group instigated the Sacramento River Massacre, where at least 150 Native Americans were killed in an unprovoked attack. And uh, as they moved up along the Sacramento River, uh, they continued to just do that. Just kind of clearing it out as they went along, because I don't know why. And then in 1846, Fremont and Carson participated in the uh, in an uprising in California called the Bear Flag Revolt. Mexico ordered all Americans to leave California, and the American settlers wanted to be free of the American government and declared California an independent republic. And so that was the Bear Flag uh, Revolt. So during this time, uh, in the 1840s and 50s, especially with the reports from Fremont coming back to the United States in the East, he talked about Kit Carson and uh, his skill as a guide and outdoorsman and as a fighter and, you know, a a real white American hero. Mm -hmm. And so these stories gained popular acclaim and there were dime novels printed, uh, such as An Adventure of Kit Carson, A Tale of the Sacramento, and other ones like Kit, Kit Carson, The Prince of the Gold Hunters, and The Prairie Flower, and uh, other stories about him, like Kiowa Charlie, the White Mustanger, or Rocky Mountain Kit's Last Scalp Hunt. All of these, all of these, like, you know, sensational stories of the Wild West and this, yeah. you know, brave mountain man fighting the savage Indians to protect civilized people and all that. In 1846, the Mexican-American War broke out, and uh, he served in the United States Army, you know, fighting against against uh, Mexican forces in California territory and New Mexico. Uh, and he earned some accolades there by uh, trekking across the desert barefoot overnight for 25 miles to get to San Diego and, and bring reinforcements back to save his unit. Then after the Mexican-American War... For the uh, the 1850s, his life kind of kind of calmed down. He became an Indian agent, which meant he worked for the U.S. Department of Indian Affairs, mm-hmm. uh, and he actually acted on behalf of the the native populations in the New Mexico Territory and the Utah Territory, uh, kind of around there. He is, was especially a friend of the Ute tribe, and he went to Washington D.C. a number of times and spoke on their behalf to the U.S. government. You know, a recognizable good thing that he was doing. In 1861, the American Civil War broke out, and he left his job as an Indian agent and joined the Union Army. He fought the Confederate forces at the Battle of Valverde in New Mexico. The Confederates won, but they were, won that battle, but they later lost and retreated back to Texas. Mm -hmm. There was not a lot of fighting in the Western territories uh, during the Civil War. And... Once they were driven from New Mexico, 
the Union Army there decided that they should focus on the native tribes of the area. And this was, uh, you know, the 1850s he spent as an Indian agent, and now he's a, an army colonel taking orders to essentially wage war against a number of different tribes. First one was the Apaches. Major General James Henry Carleton is a pretty psychopathic dude from what I can read. Uh, he, he had this just like utter vendetta against pretty much every native tribe around. And so Carleton either led or, or ordered Carson to lead a number of uh, campaigns against the Mescalero Apache, where they were put into a reservation on Pecos River. Then, when the Apache were kind of taken care of, Carson actually offered his resignation. That was in 1863, uh, because he had been injured earlier, and he was getting old, he didn't want to do it, and he really wasn't into it. He, he didn't support Carlton's orders, but he was a military man, so he was going to follow him. Uh, Carlton did not accept his resignation, and then uh, ordered him to go and round up the Navajo and bring them to the reservation as well. That proved to be a bit more difficult because the Navajo were very good at hiding and very good at uh, running and, and like keeping themselves safe. But eventually in 1864, around 5,000 uh, Navajo were forced to walk from their uh, ancestral land to Bosque Redondo, or uh, Round Grove, which was where the reservation was. And this is known to the Navajo as the Long Walk of the Navajo. And that's a, it's a pretty important moment in the history of the Navajo Nation. Yeah. Uh, so, don't talk too much about it, but I also don't want to gloss it over as though it's not a big deal. It's a yeah. pretty big deal. And then in 1864, he uh, led his last forces in the First Battle of Adobe Walls in the Texas Panhandle. And that was... Uh, Against mostly Kiowa Indians, but also some also some Comanche as well, and they I don't know committed to some atrocities, which again I don't want to necessarily get into, but I want to make sure that I point out they inflicted serious casualties, uh, but they actually lost and needed to retreat. So they retreated back to New Mexico, um, and even with that retreat, General Carleton wrote to Carson. This brilliant affair adds another green leaf to the laurel wreath which you have so nobly won in service of your country. Because mm. you killed a bunch of natives. Just, you still have those atrocities. Yeah. Yeah. And that, uh, that kind of reached the end of his, uh, his military career. He didn't live much longer beyond that anyway. He died in 1868, so only, only four years later. A little bit more about him, just some, some trivia about him. He was, uh, he was illiterate his whole life. He learned how to write C. Carson to kind of sign his name, but uh, aside from that, he never learned how to read or write. He claimed uh, in his memoirs that, I was a young boy in the schoolhouse when the cry came, Injuns! I jumped to my rifle and threw down my spelling book, and there it lies. So that was his kind of attitude toward it. Hmm. Um, he joined Freemasonry in the Santa Fe Territory, in 1854, so he was a Freemason. He died in, like I said, 1868, uh, shortly after his wife, his wife Josefa, died from complications of childbirth, giving birth to their eighth child. He was hit pretty hard by that, uh, and so he died. And he he was buried in Taos, but that was he was living in Colorado in 
Boggsville, Colorado at the time, and he and he actually died in Fort Lyon. Yeah, so his legacy, for a long time he was hailed as an American hero. Uh, you know, he, he was a champion of American uh, frontiersmen and defending, you know, settlers against Indian threats and all of that. He has a lot of things named after him, like Carson City, like Fort Carson, Colorado, which is an army post. He's got museums and stuff. He has a statue in Denver of him on horseback. Also another one in Trinidad, Colorado. There's Carson National Forest. And yeah. But as we progressed into the 60s and 70s and, and scholars and academics became more concerned with the plight of minorities and, you know, the the, the imperialist nature of our history, he became kind of an, a villain, mm-hmm. particularly because of his military campaigns against Native Americans. Pl- plenty of Native American people did and still do look, you know, look at him as a figure of evil and mm-hmm. as a butcher, which, yeah. you know, fully... Understandably. Yeah. Understandably. But now it seems like the pendulum has not swung back, but it has kind of moved away from that extreme... I don't know necessarily if there are people who are like, you know, kind of apologetic about his his behavior or if there are uh, historians who are kind of taking his whole existence into account and saying like, okay, yeah, that was bad, but there were also good things he did. And so we need to recognize both. But at this point, he he is, I think, I think fairly recognized as someone who was pretty brutal and very heavy-handed and violent for much of his life, but in some ways also contributed to some positive things in both the the growth of the United States and also for some of the native populations of the region. Hmm. Yeah. So that's that's Kit Carson. I had no idea. Yeah, I, I didn't either. And really, I didn't mention this a lot in this in his information, but I would just assume that the majority of his time was spent in Nevada, given that. The capital city is named after him. From what I read, a lot of like his time kind of settled, you know, when he wasn't actively trekking somewhere, was in New Mexico and Colorado. Mm, yeah. So. Thank you. This was this was yeah. very informative. I had no idea. And I got to learn about John C. Fremont, who was pretty cool. He was the first Republican nominee for president. He lost to Buchanan in 1856. He was a he was an interesting dude, Fremont. And then yeah. that James Henry Carlton guy reading about him was just like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. That. Um, don't want to talk th- about him. This much is more. maybe my ignorance, but I heard the phrase bear flag revolt for the first time in this deep dive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, it's where the bear flag republic was quote unquote established. That's yeah. why California's flag is what it is. Yeah. And a little trivia about that. That's not in the quiz, but the the star on the California flag is in reference to the Lone Star Republic. Um, oh. Kind of like a, a tip of the hat toward uh, the, you know, the, the kind of rebellion in Texas against uh, the Mexican government. Yeah. Huh. All right. Quiz time. All right. You ready for this? Yes, as ready <laughs> as I'll ever be. Sure. Holy cow, Kit Carson was portrayed on film many times. The earliest was the 1936 film Sutter's Gold. Who played him? This actor also won an Academy Award for his role of President of the Senate in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 
but he's not related to an iconic Chicago Cubs announcer with whom he shares his name. Oh, drat. Uh, Stephen Gray's going to be mad at me because I'm sure <laughs> he said the name of this actor, but I do not know. I don't know. Not even going to hazard a guess? Uh, I feel like holy cow was maybe a hint, but I can't think where I would go from there. Yeah, uh, we. Uh, I will say, shouldn't say Smith. Shouldn't say Jones. Johnson. I'll say Johnson. It is not Johnson. That would be uh, Harry Carey. Oh, okay. Although it's spelled differently than Harry Carey, the iconic Chicago Cubs announcer. Okay. Harry Carey, he was, uh, he was a silent film star, uh, and he was usually cast as a Western hero. But uh, like I mentioned, he was... Did I say he won? I gotta change that. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor uh, in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah, nice. Question two. Known to the Lakota and other Plains Indians as the Battle of the Greasy Grass, and also commonly referred to as Custer's Last Stand... What is the quote-unquote official name for the battle that was an armed engagement between the combined forces of Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes against the 7th Cavalry Regiment of the United States Army, which resulted in the defeat of U.S. forces and was the most significant action in the Great Sioux War of 1876? It was also named for the nearby river. Huh. I have an answer stuck in my head and I don't think it's right. I'm so bad at battle names. Okay, so the thing that's stuck in my head that I think I'm going to have to go with because I can't shake it enough to access other guesses is that I'm remembering there's this significant Native American history book that I keep meaning to read, but I haven't yet, called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And I can't remember what Wounded Knee is, but that's going to be my guess. Wounded Knee is a very good guess, but no, it is the Battle of Little Bighorn. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, Wounded Knee was uh, sometimes called the Battle of Wounded Knee, sometimes called the Wounded Knee Massacre. Uh, mm-hmm. That was also with the Lakota, so okay. it is related. Um, All right, I was yes. I was close-ish, close enough that I'm not embarrassed. But yeah. uh, Little Bighorn, of course, it was the Battle of Little, Little Bighorn. That's okay. That's okay. I'm hoping this next one, hoping this next one, you can get question three. This NBC show that ran from 1982 to 1986 in its original series features David Hasselhoff and his technologically advanced sidekick Kit fighting crime. What's this show? Oh, Drat. Is this this the one with the boat? I think it's the one with the boat. What is that called? Um, I don't even know if I'm on the right track here. I will give you a hint. Kit is not a boat. Not a boat. All right. um... But Kit is a vehicle of some kind. Okay. The phrase that's coming to mind is Knight Rider, and I don't know why. And I thought Knight Rider was a boat, but maybe... That's my guess. I'm going with Knight Rider. You are correct. It is Knight Rider. Yeah, Kit's a car. (laughs) How in the world? (laughs) He's a Trans Am. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, who can talk and and do other things. Yes. Very good. Yes. Make this podcast, and I'm like, the entire trivia community should be ashamed of me. Um, (laughs) It's fine. I guess I had Knight Rider attached to David Hasselhoff in my head somewhere. There you go. There's no wrong way to know something. Yes. That was was more of a no wrong way to guess something than a no wrong way to know something, but okay. That's fair. 
I should, I, I guess I didn't say at the beginning, but the, the title of the quiz is Kit Carson Mountain Man. The, the connection there is Kit. Okay. Um, oh, yep. Got it. Little outside. All right, number, uh, question four. So you've got ten points. Yes, you're on the board. Yeah. Question four. Kit Carson is buried in Taos, New Mexico. Taos became a destination for American authors and artists, including Mabel Dodge Lujan and D.H. Lawrence, as well as this painter, the mother of American modernism. This painter, the mother of American modernism. All right. She's the mother of American modernism, so it is a female painter. I'm narrowing it down to three. I am thinking of Frida Kahlo. Thinking of Georgia O'Keeffe. I'm thinking of Grandma Moses. I'm going to go with Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia O'Keeffe is my answer. You are correct. It is Georgia O'Keeffe. Yes. I'm realizing this, this, these questions may, uh, may skew much harder for you being an East Coast person for pretty much your entire life. But yeah, Georgia O'Keeffe, her, her paintings, like obviously she has like her, her flower, you know, series. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also has New York landscape or New York, New York, um, like skylines kind of, and then New Mexico landscapes. Those are kind of mm-hmm. like her three, I don't want to say genres, but kind of like milieus, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I uh, I don't know her very very well, um, but I think of I think of the flowers and I think of those skulls. The um... mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. George O'Keefe is very strongly associated with Taos. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right, twenty nice. points. Yay. Question five: What is the term used for the group or classification of peaks, mostly in the Rocky Mountains, that are considered the most difficult and most prestigious to summit? Colorado is home to the most. And the term refers to the peak elevation of each of those mountains. Hmm. Um, okay, the group of mountains that are considered like the most prestigious to summit. And I, w- I will point out that they are not like a group in terms of proximity. Okay. And the term refers to the elevation? Yes, the, the, okay. the elevation of the summits. All right. Um... How high would a tall... Uh, I'll say... I'm trying to think, come up with a reasonable guess. I don't know it. Sure. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just went down a whole little mile-high club road. No, that's <laughs> something else. <laughs> that is something else. And uh, I will say the mountains are more than a mile high. <laughs> I, I think... I feel like I've heard something of like 10,000 something, but I don't know how to turn it into a phrase. 10,000 something. You're going with 10,000 something? I'm going uh, with the, and if it's okay. close enough, then it's close enough, but probably sure, not. Sure, sure. No, uh, the, the term for it is uh, 14ers. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. That refers to all of their peaks being over 14,000 feet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that rings a bell. That was a fair question. Okay. Good. I'm. I'm glad. I. I wrote that one, and I was like, "Oh man, to to me and other Coloradans, this is a gimme, right? Like, if you haven't right. climbed a 14er, it's like, have you really lived here? Yeah. Um, I've done a few. I intend to do more when the girls get older. Yeah. But anyway, all right. So you're at 20 points. That's that is respectable. That's certainly better than I think I've done on a number of quizzes. Uh, going into the final. So the right. category for the final. I'm going to say is Indian Affairs. All 
hundred. I am not super confident here. I'm just gonna wager. I'm gonna wager ten. Okay, for a solid thirty. Yeah. We talked about the long walk of the Navajo. What is the name of the series of forced relocations of approximately sixty thousand members of the Cherokee? Muscogee or Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations, as well as their African slaves from their ancestral homelands in the southeastern United States to areas west of the Mississippi River that had been designated as Indian territories. These forced relocations were carried out by the government following the passage of the Indian Removal Act in 1830. All right. I'm making that face that the Jeopardy contestants make when they make a conservative wager and then see a question they know the answer to. Um, That's the Trail of Tears. That is the Trail of Tears, yes. I don't want to be like, ding, 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 yeah, it's the Trail of Tears, (laughs) right? Because that feels really bad. (laughs) Uh, But yes, yeah. That's very important to know. It is. It is an important and heartbreaking aspect of our history. Uh, but yeah, all right. So you got thirty points. Yeah, good. Nice. Quiz. Thank you. Thank you. And nice job. Thank you. Hopefully, our listeners got some of those. Maybe some of the ones I missed. Uh, speaking of our listeners, thank you, listeners, for being here with us. Uh, lovely as always to share Jeopardy with you. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it would be great if you could leave us a rating or a review, also. And check out our Patreon. We mentioned that earlier in the show, but it's uh, patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, and even if you can't necessarily slide a few bucks our way, you can always help us out by telling your friends. Uh, you and they can find us on Facebook at potentpotables or on Twitter at potentpotables1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. So we will be back next week with a not another week of Jeopardy recaps. Like we mentioned, it will be a little bit different, so be sure to check it out. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.